Bibi Fahodie, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodie, this is Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother... Macaroo, we are here at the African Liberation Media. Our purpose is to uplift Africans throughout the diaspora. Suffice it to say, the public is ill-served by the mainstream media, and thus we are here to bring you some cutting-edge information that's generally left out of the mainstream. I'm struck by the fact that uh, a tremendous amount of attention has been given to the kidnapping and the abuses near McAllen and Edinburgh, Texas. We don't want to minimize any suffering, but kidnapping is not a new phenomena here in Babylon. Millions of Africans stolen, kidnapped in the state of Florida, stolen and fed to gators. There's bait, rapings near the border, Rapings during the process of the coffle, the transition from the interior of Africa to the coast. But just imagine, if you will, your son, wife, daughter, loved one just simply disappearing. Now just let that marinate for a second as we approach what we might describe as the holiest of days, the fourth of you lied, as Brother Macaroo refers to it, you know, freedom, justice, independence, for who? Africans in dire straits. Man does not have a decent income, you neither have life nor liberty, Doc told us, as far as the pursuit of happiness is concerned, you merely exist. We are in a dangerous situation in 2019 we no longer needed to pick the cotton, the fruit. Most of the skilled labor is provided by Eastern Europeans and trade unions. What few exist are still racist to the core. Brother Wilson told us that Africans are no longer needed to maintain America's employment structure. What will we do? What are we preparing to do once the dollar retreats? and austerity measures are imposed on those social programs that stand between us and non-existence. Brothers, take it away. Well, Bibi Fahodie, African family, another opportunity here on African Liberation Media to discuss critical issues affecting the whole African world. One of the things that uh, struck me this week, uh, notification I got from uh, from Brother Tyrone Jefferson of A Sign of the Times here in Charlotte, great jazz band. And it was talking about uh, this uh, petition on color of change, a demand to the D.C. Council to protect D.C.'s black-owned businesses. And what's happening is that gentrification Gentrification is having a devastating impact on the, the few black businesses that are left in many of these traditional black communities. Uh, 
in particularly in the, the large urban centers of the United States. Uh, gentrification is the removal of African people from their traditional communities, and it should be considered, in my opinion, a component of the new Jim Crow, because, you know, I remember when, I guess sometimes, maybe around in the late 1960s when the uh, open housing laws took effect and the communities that had been formerly segregated now were open to African people. Of course, a lot of us chose not to, uh, you know, chase the Holy Grail, but to stay in our own communities. But a lot of people did start moving into some of these communities. And what happened was, as soon as black people moved into the communities, this is in, say, 1968 through the mid-1970s into maybe the early 80s, white people fled. It was like a plague was coming. They bailed out of these communities right and left. And the communities were soon all black. Clanton Park, for example, here in Charlotte, segregated community. Uh, Hidden Valley was a segregated community here in Charlotte. White people fled to the suburbs. They called it white flight. And these communities uh, became, you know, predominantly, or if not entirely, African, African American. Now, at the same time, in the communities that were closer to the actual business district, communities like the uh, the Brooklyn community in the old uh, second ward of Charlotte, they had what was called urban renewal because these communities had, had sprung up uh, at the end of chattel slavery and they were the only places where our people could live. And over a period of time, they began to build businesses and, you know, there were schools, churches and and everything that uh, was virtually self-sustaining. But a lot of these communities were located in what's called prime real estate. And the capitalist class wanted these communities to expand their, the, the, the cities, the, the core of the city, the center of the cities. So they came up with this program called Urban Renewal, which Sister Terry TMD called Urban Removal. Because black people, was, these, these communities were literally systematically raised. They, they, they just went in with bulldozers, just knocked the houses down and everything else. And, um, and so, so you had that taking place. So you had the urban renewal taking place and you had white flight. Well, in many of these communities, probably uh, sometime after or in, in the beginning of the 21st century, White people decided that there was value living in the inner cities, that they had fled. And so they, they began to move back into the center cities. And this, is, this became known as gentrification because they, they move in, obviously, with a higher income, higher medium income and wealth. They buy property. Uh, they build, they sometimes, most of the time, they would just tear up the homes down that were there and just build these large structures, which then drove the tax rates up. So we're experiencing a lot of gentrification in many, 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 many cities. 
and perhaps DC. Well, I guess San Francisco was number one because there's this uh, uh, thing called the last black man standing in San Francisco. They've just about wiped the whole black community of San Francisco out that used to live out around Hunter's Point. Um, so this Color of Change article written by uh, Brandy Collins Dexter said, Gentrification is forcing black-owned businesses in Washington, D.C. to close. Many of these businesses have been community staples for decades, surviving, uh, surviving recessions and natural disasters. But the drastic increase in property taxes and rent driven by gentrification are putting them out of their business. The city, once known as Chocolate City for its thriving black neighborhoods and rich culture, has been declared the most gentrified city in the country. And one of the businesses... Uh, that they highlighted is the Sankofa uh, bookstore video cafe. And Sankofa, of course, is the, uh, based on the, the movie that was produced several years ago by uh, Haile Garima, I think his name. And uh, it, it's one of the movies that really enlightened us to the horrors of chattel slavery. And so they have this, they've had this bookstore in D.C. for, you know, several, you know, tens of years now. And uh, they, they're in a situation where they can't pay the can't pay the taxes. The community that was supporting them has, is being taken over by white people. And of course, white people are not going to support the business. And so this is this is becoming a critical issue for us, not just from the perspective of. You know, black people losing homes. Some people are actually becoming homeless. Others are being forced into situations where, uh, you know, that just uh, can't afford to pay the rent, all types of things that are that are taking place. People fall behind on the property taxes and then, you know, the state moves in. And so, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's really a sign of the times. It's, it's just another example of how these cycles of white supremacy just keep repeating in different forms. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that was one of the things that uh, that I wanted to talk about. We have it up actually on our on our page with a uh, with a couple of links, you know, for people to to follow. And, you know, I thought about this within the context of this proposal that was uh, this bill that has been proposed by Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat candidate for the presidency. Uh, she proposed this bill to give $57 million, is it million or billion? I can't remember now, in tax breaks to uh, same-sex couples. She said they suffered some kind of uh, income loss because the tax laws didn't recognize them. And she wants to, quote-unquote, give them a form of reparations. But who really needs tax breaks? Here's a perfect example right here. The Sankofa bookstore and video cafe in D.C. Where, where, who is proposing a bill? Now, there, there's a D.C. Uh, city uh, councilwoman that has proposed a bill. Hopefully it'll pass. Uh, but, uh, you know, D.C. is still under control of the uh, United States Congress. So... You know, this is just another example of, you know, what, what we're dealing with here in this third cycle of white supremacy in the United States. Quick comment, brother. You, clearly, 
the life of, of a community is intricately tied to the maintenance of a bookstore as a place to gather. I mean, it's one thing we've liked, lacked in Charlotte is a gathering spot. And also, it's, it's absolutely foolish, utterly ridiculous for you to talk about private ownership with the reality of uh, gentrification or eminent domain, you know, some of these policies that have wiped out whole black communities. Liberty City in, Mi Liberty City in Miami, one of many examples. You know, and, and sadly, you have uh, many black leaders, mayors per se, who are more concerned with the gentrification of their particular communities as opposed to the type of economic development that could have benefited the constituents that were responsible for putting them in office. Yeah, exactly. unfortunately, the black leaders, once they get that money, the majority of them side with the gentrification rules. But going back to your point about the Sankofa bookstore, if you want to take action, uh, one of the things that you can do is there was a um, form that was sent out. If you go to support.sankofa.com, you can uh, actually submit something like a petition where they're trying to get an amendment passed to remove the taxes in the amount that they're being charged. Uh, we'll put it up on our Facebook page, uh, but basically it's a it's a tax exemption, a property tax exemption um, amendment that they're trying to get passed. So we'll post that out there. But that, I mean that it, that would be a devastating loss to that area. Every time I visit, you know Howard University, I always go to St. Kofa Bookstore, and it's not only just a bookstore, but it's also a place where you can you know meet uh, with brothers and sisters who have groups. You know they have meetings. Uh, you know they sell food. Um, so, I mean, it's just a another African environment that's in danger of being uh, extinct. So I think we definitely should rally around uh, however we can provide support so that we make sure that that bookstore doesn't get closed down. Uh, one of the things that happened to the brother who created the movie, Sankofa, mm. is many people bootlegged this movie. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he did not receive the funds that he should have for that type of production uh, where he wouldn't even have to worry about, you know, the taxes being $30,000, even though that's an outrageous amount. We still have to understand that when we don't support people who provide materials that enlighten us, then it can ultimately lead to them not being able to provide other businesses that can support the African community. Mm -hmm. uh, so I also wanted to point that out. And to your point, just last week, we talked about reparations, H.R. 40. And one of the things that we said in the last program was that the homophiles and the homosexuals were going to be moving in and trying to capitalize off of the idea of black people getting reparations to see how they can benefit the same way they did with the civil rights movement. Well, the very next day, that's when it was released that Elizabeth Warren proposed this tax bill, or, or this tax refund bill, I should say, for homosexual couples. And basically what she's saying is that these couples were married, but because it wasn't federally recognized, the federal government did not give them the deductions on their tax returns. So she's trying to get them refunds for those misdeductions. Now, 
for all of the people out there who always like to say, I don't care about what somebody else does in their bedroom. This is why you should care. And this is just a small reason why. I mean, it's, it's multiple other reasons why you should care. But ultimately, once again, this is affecting African people when you're talking about rights, regulations, or things that are being owed to us. It's really being stepped on, and I think it's going to be usurped by the homophiles so that they can benefit from us and we won't be able to benefit the way that we should. So this is why every fight is important. You can't minimize the fight against this LGBTQ movement the same way we can't minimize the fight against, you know, economic capitalism, neocolonialism, police brutality, health and sickness in our community. Everything that we deal with as a community, we should also give credit to that particular aspect of the fight and not just brush it aside because at the end of the day, all of these are weapons that are used to destroy us. And we must, you know, fight all of these fights and fronts on the battlefield. So I just wanted to point that out as well. I also wanted to talk about something that we didn't get to talk about last week on the continent. There was actually a failed coup attempt that happened in Ethiopia. Now, ever since President Abiy Ahmed took power and he, you know, signed a peace treaty with Eritrea, there have been people within the military who have been very disgruntled with that decision. And this is not the first time that they've tried to, number one, they tried to kill him when they tried to bomb him last year. And now you have this failed coup attempt and... This is why we have to really change the power structure on the African continent when it comes to government, leadership, um, positional power. We have to create a structure where there can't even be a coup attempt by the military. A coup would never happen in the United States because of the way the structure is set up. You have too many sectors of the military you know, you have the Navy, you have the Air Force, you have the Army, you have the Marines, you know, you have the Black Ops. Uh, you have all of these different groups where they work individually, but at the same time, they work towards common goals so that one group does not have the power to overthrow the entire government. You also have the Senate, you have the House of Representatives, you know, you have governors in every state. So we have to really create a United States of Africa from that standpoint. One of the things we ought to understand, too, is um, even though we look at the world from an African-centered worldview, we still have to understand that there are benefits of other things that other cultures do offer. And we have to learn the strengths of those other cultures and then take what we need to make ourselves stronger. That's not saying that we should forget about our African culture, but at the same time, we can't be so naive to believe that they're not things that we can utilize from our enemies to make ourselves a stronger people. 
the same way that the European went and, you know, with the help of the Moors, they took the gunpowder from the Chinese and they developed cannons and then they were able to go around the world with guns and pretty much with that new technology dominate everybody else on the battlefield. We have to be able to take what we can that will strengthen us from our enemies and that could be in technology, it could be in science, you know, it could be in agriculture. We have to look at the strengths across the board, make an assessment and decide what we can use. You know, brother, as I hear you talk, um, clearly one of the problems is that we have very few serious wealth creators in our community. And you gave the litany of um, armed forces you know, I'll also add uh, what exists here in Babylon, the United States, is a fanatical right wing you know, that would love to participate in the extermination of black people. You know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, why is it that, um, you know, the alt-right is highly visible? You know, and then the answer is clear, you know, that's capitalism's shock troops, <laughs> you know, a group that they can deploy, okay, uh, throw a rock and hide their hands, so to speak, financed by retrograde figures such as the Koch brothers. I mean, that has always been the case. You know, you have ne we have never experienced a COINTELPRO program meted out against the Ku Klux Klan, you know, because the goals are very similar, and that is, of course, to destroy any progressive movement, um, CIA, FBI, Ku Klux Klan are all the same. Hmm. That's a direct quote coming from the great Stokely Carmichael. Uh, and of course, we have a litany of abuses here in this state. Um, you know, brother here, Macaroo, told me in 79, you know, that uh, when the attack on the Greensboro Union workers took place. It was actually initiated from Mount Holly, North Carolina, accompanied by an FBI agent. <laughs> you know, so that's that's just uh, you know part of you know what we're dealing with. Um, this monstrosity is all engulfing. And like you said, they they're all the same, and also they all overlap. You know, you'll yes, find sir. FBI yes, agents who are part of the Klan. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, know you'll find judges that are part of the Klan. So even the deep state is has, you know, white supremacists within the ranks of those organizations. No no question about it. No you know, they, they uh if if there is a coup and some people would say that there there was one on uh uh, what was it? November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Yes, sir. Some people, some people would say that was a coup, but it was, but but it, uh, it was within the power structure, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, so the people who wanted John Kennedy removed, uh, you know, developed a plan mm -hmm. to uh, to make that happen, and yeah. there were clearly agents within the deep state. That did it, there but you go. but it was just, 
it was it was in order to make the power structure function in a different way mm-hmm. from the way that they thought Kennedy was was leading it. So so I mean it it is possible. And uh, I know Smedley, uh, Marine Corps General Smedley Butler uh, talked about the fact that that during the um, during the depression the Roosevelt administration, he was approached by a group of business people who wanted him to organize a coup uh, to overthrow Roosevelt. And, mm-hmm. and he, and he, and he turned them down. Smedley Butler. Um, uh, Most one, coups have to do with money. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. One of the, so like you said, with the deep state, with Kennedy being assassinated, he was trying to dismantle the Federal Reserve System. Exactly, yes, exactly. And so he was killed mm-hmm. the same way, yeah. you know, Abraham Lincoln was trying to change the currency, and he was killed. Right. And I and and I I I had a five dollar bill that was that was a United States note, and misplaced it, and I've been looking for it ever since. This must have been back in the nineteen seventies when this bank teller said, "I'm gonna give you this," and I this $5 bill. And I said, why? And she said, I don't know. I guess I like you. So I'm, and so I said, what's the significance of it? I didn't even know. I didn't even know that Kennedy had authorized the production of $20 bills and $5 bills that would be called United States notes instead of federal reserve notes. And she gave it to me and you know, so she said, check it out, go back and check it out. There was no internet or nothing then. So you had to, go to a library somewhere and do some research, but that was amazing. But one of the things I want to say going back to Ethiopia is that I, I, one of the things I found very interesting is that Ethiopia had just developed a peace proposal for Sudan. And it was a proposal for a transition. Mm-hmm. Now, what, hap- what happened in Sudan was uh, Bashir was overthrown. Mm-hmm. The, the the people rose up against him. All right, they said, you know, look, this, we've had we've had we had a, had enough of this authoritarian, dictatorial type of rule. So, so when the when when it when it when the military realized that uh, Omar al Bashir's position was untenable, they removed him from power and arrested him. I guess they thought that would pacify the uh, people that were protesting, and uh, the, the they they made they made some promises. When it was evident to the uh, protesters that the the uh, promises weren't forthcoming, they went back into the streets. And when they went back into the streets, then the military showed that they showed their true uh, colors and started gunning people down. So uh, Abey Ahmed had his uh, foreign ministers and get together and come up with a peace plan. And they, and they proposed it to both the government and the opposition. And the opposition accepted it. And what it was, it was a, it was a transition to quote unquote democracy. You know, however they want, however they define it. Hopefully not like the United States defines it. But it was a transition from the military rule to to rule by civilians and the opposition accepted it. And then the very next day there was a coup 
attempt in, in Ethiopia. And then the, then the military leaders of Sudan step forward and say, well, we can't accept the Ethiopian plan because uh, the AU has one. Now, nobody has ever ha hasn't seen the AU plan yet, but it was just a stall tactic. So this is just an example of the kind of things that, uh, that we're up against. Uh, you know, Sudan, the Sudan government has been sending been been allowing the Saudis to uh they've been sending people to fight with the Saudis in Yemen. Okay? And these Africans are uh, essentially uh mercenaries fighting for the corrupt Saudis in their attempt to uh, take over Yemen. And uh it's really some people consider it a proxy war against Iran. But that's the type of thing that they are allowing to take place. I mean, they are allowing the Saudis to come in and recruit people. Supposedly, you know, they're going to pay them to fight. They're over there getting killed, brutalized, maimed, and a lot of them are not even being paid. And so that's the kind of government that the people are protesting against. There, of course, these people um, consider themselves to be more Arabic than African. Uh, so, I mean, that's, and which is, which is a whole nother problem, you mm -hmm. know, when you, when you can, when you consider, I mean, <laughs> and I'll say this too about Sudan, it's probably one of the most corrupt African countries I've ever been in. Mm. The minute I got into the airport, you had to prepay for a visa. Um, so when you prepay for the visa, you have to get it approved and, you know, you come in with the visa already in your passport. When you get there, the guards at the gate, these are, you know, government officials, or at least they're working at the airport. They'll try to bribe you to purchase another visa <laughs> on top of the visa that you already prepaid for before you got there. Mm. Then they'll try to bribe you to give them a tip. Mm. So I, I, I sat back and watched a couple of people actually double pay just because they didn't want to deal with the hassle of getting into the country. Wow. So that level of corruption. Now, some countries you'll find corruption on the street where somebody may try to, you know, hustle you or something like that. But going through an airport process, as soon as you get into the country, you know, they're trying to get more money out of you. And... Once they look at your passport and see United States, they, they automatically think that you're coming with a lot of money anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not like that. And I mean, I've, I've flown through Ethiopia. Everything is professional and smooth. Uganda, professional and smooth. Um, I mean, I, pretty much every other country, I didn't have that experience, but in Sudan. Mm. Brother, you've traveled extensively. What would be your recommendation for a brother who would be interested in going back to the continent to live all things being considered to live permanently yes right now I, I would have to suggest tanzania um i like the the progressiveness uh of the tanzania government i also think that it's a real nice place to live the the the, the, the weather is good um it's a lot of financial opportunities. 
and uh, and it's I know people who've repatriated there. Some other places are a little bit harder to to get into and stay without a work visa, like places like Ethiopia. That may be a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go to Ghana. That's also another place that a lot of people repatriate to. But I think if you're trying to be on the pulse of, you know, the fight for African liberation and also being a place that's nice, I would say Tanzania is probably would probably be the first place I would suggest. Okay. Speak, speak to the issue, Doctor, of um, liberation movements, uh, the recruitment of activists, what's taking place in Tanzania that would aid and abet our universal struggle. Uh, what comes to mind in terms of the activism that has broad-based ramifications in terms of what we're up against? Well, I think it started from the top down, from the president, you know, the president being in a position where, you know, his focus is on empowering Tanzania to be self-sufficient. That's the number one thing. Um, looking looking at everything from an African-centered worldview, not, not being... Um, focused on you know corruption and you know making a lot of money. Okay. You know he's more of a people's president that's focused on improving the conditions of the people, which is evident by him moving the capital to Dahoma, which opened up a lot more opportunities for Africans that were in the central part of the country, which is evident of him that we talked about last week raising $3.4 billion to self-fund uh, a dam to be built, not you know relying on the IMF. Asian interests or the IMF or the World Bank okay. uh, to do that. So you talk about talking about economic empowerment, right. self-empowerment, and on, on top of those things, he is strongly against uh, European cultural values Mm-hmm. being widespread across the country. So when you talk about, like, Botswana, they just, you know, legalized, um, decriminalized homosexuality. <laughs> um, that definitely wouldn't happen in Tanzania. All right. And, and, and in and, Tanzania, they are not under assault by the European. Everywhere in Africa, they are assaulted by, you know, the European, the Arab, the Indian, the Asian. Um, yeah, that's not going to stop. But I think that they're working to, you know, control what they have. The land is very, you know, fertile. It's easy to get land. Uh, I know a brother that moved there, and he moved there. He has a wife and two children, and he bought, uh, I can't remember how many acres he bought, but, you know, he, he he's planning on that land. He's living there now. He repatriated there from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's able to, he's been able to, you know, function over there for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think that, you know, it's it's a place with a lot of opportunity and it's a place with the right focus. Okay, okay. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Tan- Tanzania was 
I always considered to be the foremost under under the Imwalimu Julius Nyeri in the 1960s and 1970s, Tanzania was considered to be the foremost supporter of the liberation movements in, in Southern Africa and internationally. Uh, former Black Panther Pete O'Neill and his wife, uh, Pete O'Neill came under uh, attack from uh, COINTELPRO because of some of his uh, Black Panther Party activities. And uh, he fled to Tanzania, he and his wife, uh, have a school in Arusha, and uh, they've been over there since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, almost all of the all of the liberation struggles had uh, headquarters in Dar es Salaam. Almost all of them, and uh, the Imwalimu allowed uh, Tanzania to be used as a as a base for Frelimo to uh, liberate uh, Mozambique. And of course, uh, you know this is uh, the 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 struggle launched by Frelimo was was critical to supporting uh, Robert Mugabe and their liberation struggle in Zimbabwe. Uh, the first uh, president of Frelimo, Eduardo Mondelani, was assassinated, blown up in Dar es Salaam mm. by the enemies of African people in 1969. Um, so it's always been that kind of state. Now, when I was a student at Malcolm X Liberation University, the idea for the African Liberation Day we held in uh, May of 1972 came out of a trip into liberated uh, Mozambique by our leader, uh, Dr. Howard Fuller, who we then formally called uh, Owusu, Awusu Sadoki, uh, they had an education conference in Dar. And Awusu went to represent Malcolm X Liberation University. This was in the uh, in August of 1971. And so when the school year started, Awusu wasn't back. We didn't know where he was or what had happened to him because there was no communication from him. And finally, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or two into the school year, you know, he came back and reported to us what happened. So what happened was, while he was in Dar, uh, Ferlimo, the leaders of Ferlimo, invited him to come inside the liberated territories, the land that they had taken from the Portuguese. Portuguese, of course, were being supported by the uh, white supremacists of South Africa, white supremacists of Europe, white supremacists of the United States, white supremacists of Rhodesia, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Mozambique was winning the war. I mean, the, the Frelimo was winning the war to take their country back. And so uh, Awusu went inside the liberated territories and he saw the liberation schools that they set up. He saw the farming cooperatives they were set up, the medical clinics. You know, this, this is... There's a consistent pattern when you when 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 you see liberation struggles. These are these are three things that you always see: liberation schools, clinics to treat the people, and uh, farming cooperatives. And Shea and Fidel actually took it further. They actually started some manufacturing inside the liberated liberated territories. They were taking in Cuba, 
But what happened was when while Owusu was there, uh, the Portuguese flying these old uh, 19 Korean War airplanes that the United States had given them or whatever, uh, somebody in Europe had given them some old airplanes. So they discovered uh, this camp. And so they, they came in, you know, with their uh, dive bombers, you know, like the Germans, the Stuka dive bombers. And uh, Awusu was like, he, he, he told us as he described the attack, he said like he was hugging a, a, a tree, trying to become part of the tree, but he, was, but, he, but he knew it was a historic moment. So he took, took pictures of these Portuguese planes, these dive bombers as they came in to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, bomb the, the liberated territory there that Frelimo had claimed. And so uh, they didn't have, in this particular village, they didn't have any anti-aircraft artillery. All they had was AK-47s. But they were able to do enough damage with AK-47s that they ran the Portuguese off. So after the uh, after the you know bombing and scraping was over, and you know they assessed the damages. Obviously, they 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 had things planned. I mean, okay, they had like you know uh, places where people could hide, like tunnels and all kinds of stuff. I mean, this is these are well thought out guerrilla warriors, right? The, on the African continent that we don't even. Talk, we talk a lot about Che Guevara and we and and and, and, and Fidel and we should, but you know that our people understood this this whole process of guerrilla warfare also, uh -huh. and um, so they had a meeting afterwards, and Awusu asked them, say, what can we do in the United States? What can Africans in America do to help you? And he said, the number one thing you all can do is. Portugal has a lot of friends in the U.S. Congress. They have the support of the uh, of the corporate media in this war. We need to let our people in that part of the world know what's going on. So anything you could do to let our people know that we are, that we are fighting this war and any kind of support they can give us, you know, we would very much appreciate it. So he came God, back man. with the idea, say, well, you know, we've been having these small African Liber Liberation Day events. Why don't we call for a massive demonstration? So he called all of the leaders that were, quote unquote, you know, we're moving, trying to move away from this term, pan-Africanist leaders at that time in the United States, uh, Miri Baraka and, uh, you know, Ron Daniels, uh, Gene Locke, a lot, a lot of, a lot of guys that were that were you know the leaders that were focused on african liberation at that time so they started having meetings first in greensboro you know where we were located then around the country and so they formed the african liberation day coordinating committee and uh it was it was there was it was there was a central committee a core group and then they then a lot of people signed on to it like jesse jackson and you know some of the uh, Congress people like Charles Diggs and, you know, others signed on to it. Kwame Ture signed on to it, but he was based in Guinea at the time, you know, studying under uh, Nkrumah and Secretore. So we spent a year actually organizing this demonstration. And uh, we wound up with about 50,000 people um, there 
to uh, about 35,000 in D.C. And uh, then uh, in in continental and in North America, we had the largest demonstration was in D.C. There were about 5,000 people in San Francisco. Uh, Walter Rodney, for example, was was one of the featured speakers in San Francisco. We had one in Toronto and then on two islands in the uh, Caribbean, uh, Antigua and Dominica. We had uh, we had uh, demonstrations there. Maurice Bishop was part of this. Okay, even though Grenada didn't have a demonstration, but he was part of it. So, uh, so what we did was uh, we made people aware that Africans were actually engaged in armed struggle mm. to free their to free their country, and they were being supported by the United States. So as we moved around D.C., we had uh, strategic places where we wanted to stop the demonstration and have people speak. So we stopped in front of the Rhodesian Information Service, and we had uh, representatives of, from uh, Mugabe's uh, ZANU and uh, Joshua Nkoma's ZAPU. Uh, we stopped in front of the, uh, the Portuguese embassy. Uh, we had people there from uh, representing uh, the MPLA in Angola and uh, Amakar Cabral's PAIGC. Uh, we stopped in front of the South African embassy. We had people from the ANC and the PAC and uh, some of the other groups that were there. Uh, and uh, then we wound up at the Washington Monument. And here's the, the, I was driving a car that was leading the demonstration around the city. And so we, we had a stage and everything set up at the Washington Monument because that's where people were going to speak. So when, when we came down, uh, I forget what is it, maybe Constitution Avenue, I can't remember now, because the last stop was the State Department, because we wanted to make sure people understood that the United States, you know, is the big dog. Wherever there are white imperialists fighting in the world, the United States is the big dog. They can't do anything without the United States. So we wanted to make sure we connected the United States to this, uh, you know, to apartheid in South Africa, you know, apartheid in Zimbabwe, the struggles that were being fought, Africans were being were fighting in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, for example. So, uh, so I got to add. We were supposed to go all the way down Constitution Avenue, but I said the heck with that. So I pulled my car up on the grass because we had been marching in the streets. And so, as I drove toward the Washington Monument, I was looking in my rearview mirror, and all you could see was <coughs> thousands of black people spread out across the lawn. Now, this is Memorial Day weekend, so all these white people are there at the Washington Monument. They see all they see these thousands of black people coming. <laughs> it was a mass exodus. But uh that's just uh that was just one of the great things about Tanzania under the Mwalimu Julius Nayeri. And, you know, it appears that uh, President uh, John uh, Magafuli is, you know, moving in in his in his footsteps and here's the problem with the uh, magafuli bay Ahmed, and these other guys they are basically isolated they're basically isolated and that makes them vulnerable and so it's going to be up to the people of tanzania and other africans who believe in african liberation to protect you know these leaders i mean people have to be willing to say you know we fight to the death Mm-hmm. That's what you have to be willing to do. It's like, you know, almost now we're talking about last week. <laughs> Fidel and 82 men aboard the Grandma, reduced to 12. But the peasants 
They had a lot of support amongst the peasants, amongst university students, amongst intellectuals. They just wanted to see some real men stand up and fight. And that's what Fidel and Raul and Shea were. So Samora Michelle, who took over and became the leader of um, Ferlimo after uh, Eduardo Mondelani was assassinated. See, African people can look at leaders like Samora Michelle, Amilcar Cabral, Chris Haney. They see real people. They see real men who would give their lives. And we'll always believe that that the that the, uh, the, uh, the white supremacists of South Africa shot down the plane that killed Samora Michelle, right? We'll always believe that that was an assassination attempt because of all the support that he was giving to the PAC and the, the ANC and the other groups that were fighting to liberate South Africa. So our leaders, our, our leaders get isolated and that makes them vulnerable. Thomas Sankara was isolated and he had enemies within his best friend, a sellout, right? So this is the struggle that we're up against, but it takes men that, and women, right? Samora Michelle, first wife, Josina, was a warrior. She died at a very young age. She had some kind of uh, uh, circulatory system complications. This was before he married Gracia, who then married Nelson Mandela after, you know, he split with... Uh, the warrior queen, uh, Winnie. So, uh, you know, this is the connections, but we have to understand that, uh, that these brothers can be easily isolated unless African people are willing to say, look, you know, you take down one of our leaders, some of your leaders got to go. You can't, you can't lose a Dr. King and then burn a store down and think that, that, that you know, no, 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 no. You know, the African doesn't always have to die, but when the African dies, somebody else has got to go. That's just plain and simple. Mm -hmm. You know, brother, you were uh, talking about uh, this free-floating anger that we find uh, throughout the colonial enclaves, wherever black people reside. Uh, sister got shot down. Uh, young sister, 11 years old, brutally murdered in Anderson, South Carolina. We had a shooting here recently on the Beatty's Ford Road corridor. You want to talk about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I was on such a positive role. I hate to, but, you know, this is the reality that we're dealing with. I mean, I call it the tyranny of stray bullets. And yeah, it's part to okay to me. These people are like people you have to go to war with, just like Narmer, because they they have total disregard. They have as much disregard for black life as you know the Grand Dragon or the Ku Klux Klan. They fired at least thirty five shots, perhaps more into this home. Mm. I mean, why you just fire into a home, there are children there. This 11-year-old sister, Janea Scott, 11 years old, sleeping. Well, no, they weren't sleeping. She and her 11-year-old cousin and her 18-year-old sister were sitting up doing what children do late at night, watching TV, maybe on social media. Some fools fire into the home, kill, kill, kill the young girl. The 11-year-old is in a critical condition, 18-year-old sister. 
you know, received the, the, the fewest injuries. Then you had the pregnant sister standing outside of uh, a store here in Charlotte uh, last Saturday. Her name is uh, Elena Blake, 19 years old. She was pregnant. Somebody has a beef with somebody. They fire into a crowd. These fools can't shoot because they always hit an innocent person. And, uh, you know, and so we, boom, yeah, got the gun turned sideways or whatever because something, something they watched on television. And um, so Alani, it's A-L-A-N-I, so I guess that's Alani. Alani and her baby girl are expected to survive. The uh, child was born prematurely. She only weighs uh, two pounds and seven ounces. Um, it was just a drive-by shooting. And this 19-year-old girl who's just standing around, you know, get shots. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, how do you? Well, if we had perhaps some violence de-escalators, you know, people that were walking the streets that were aware that there's a beef between people and they try to pull them together to negotiate some peaceful settlement. I mean, that's been tried in certain communities. They had the violence interrupters in, in Chicago. They had, had in several other cities, you know, Sacramento, not Sacramento. What was a uh, thing? Stockton. Can't remember the city in California that uh, actually uh, came up with taxpayer money to put brothers on the street. And you, and you, you got to put brothers out there on the street that, came from the streets, that know the streets, that, that know how to speak the language to the people that's engaging in these activities, you may be able to de-escalate, you know, some of this, but we got to realize that these guns are being planted in our community, man. It's no accident. If the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army was operating, you wouldn't see these guns in our community. I guarantee you that. Because mm -hmm. they'd be afraid. You know, the Fred Car Fred Hamptons and Bunchy Carters would be jumping up. So uh -huh. that's you know that you know I you know I proposed that if the city was serious, they would consider uh, putting some violence reduction teams on the streets that are that are taxpayer funded. Now the chief of police he was bragging last year. Oh, we reduced crime. We only had fifty-eight murders. We've already had fifty-seven so far, half a year. So now he's looking to cast you know the blame on everybody. So he's blaming the magistrates. Well, the magistrates are letting these people out. They're giving them ankle monitors. Well, the ma the magistrates were letting these people out last year. See that just goes to show you that that you that you law enforcement doesn't have a clue. That to, as to how to solve the problem if they were really interested in solving it. You know, like Dr. Amos Wilson says, black-on-black -black violence serves political purposes in this country because you're reducing an unwanted population. So what's mm -hmm. their real motivation? Why would they really want to stop black people from killing one another? It's really up to us. You mean, you know, we need, you know, some versions of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, Brothers that were willing to go into the streets to like stand between these guys and say, look, no, we're not going to tolerate this. And these are the consequences if you do. Mm -hmm. You fire into your home and kill an 11-year-old, then, you know, 
yourself with some street justice. I mean, brother, no rhyme or reason, no motivation, just randomly firing into a home. Well, we don't, I'm, I'm sure that, that they thought they had a reason. Maybe they had a beef with somebody in the home. You know, that's usually what it is. There's something that's going on with somebody that they think is in the home. And so they, they just fire into the home, right? I mean, you know, at least Al Capone had the decency to lure people, you know. Into a garage. Into a garage, right? Lucky Luciano was supposed to kill a guy. You know, this is when he was working his way up the chain, you know, on the, uh, the, the, the La Cosa Nostra. He went to kill the guy. The guy was eating dinner with his wife and children. Luciano came back. And he told the Don, the Don said, why didn't you take the guy out? He said, I can't kill this man in front of his wife and children. He said, there'll be plenty of opportunities. This is what Lucky Luciano. I, I saw a similar. The greatest gangster in the history. I mean, the greatest, the greatest, quote unquote, other than, you know, the Andrew Jacksons. And, you know, that's I mean. That's a cold, you know, and the colds have evaporated. Exactly. This has been the African Liberation Media. Uh, we appreciate the um, the commentary offered by Brother Amos, Amos, I'm sorry, and Brother Makaru. We've covered uh, the spectrum of African concerns and interests. Tune in next week. You can also check us out on ALM on the social media Facebook of BB Fodier. BB Fodier. BB Fodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.